0: Today's reading comes from Matthew, chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer the Lord, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
1: Well, good morning. It's, uh, it's good to see you all. Uh, welcome to church this morning. Um, Super Bowl Sunday. Broncos aren't in it um, next year. Uh, anyhow, ho- hope, uh, hope you're all rooting for Atlanta. Come on, come on. Okay, all right, enough of that. Um, that's enough fun for the rest of the morning. Uh, really, it's good to have you here this morning. Um, this is going to be really an unusual sermon. Um, I, I want to tell you I'm going to kind of let it work a little bit as we kind of think through this topic. Uh, I, the, the, the title of this is The Growth of Christianity, and what I hope to be able to do is kind of show you how this ties into the kind of the tenet or the core piece of this, this whole series. Um, what we've done in the series is try to take a step back and to acknowledge the fact that the Scripture speaks from cover to cover about the advancement of God's kingdom, but the expansion of that kingdom that the Scripture really describes doesn't come from the top down. It doesn't come from getting a candidate in, in office or passing various legislation, Um, it comes organically from the bottom up. It comes from Christians just like you um, understanding life and organically bringing redemption into those aspects of life that typically we wouldn't think of. Uh, The advancement of the church hasn't followed the course or on the rails of big churches raising tons of money. Um, It's really just about very sincere people grasping and embracing the reality that they can actually change the world. Now, when we today what we're going to do is to, is to take a step back and to look at what's happening in, in our country as it relates to the growth of Christianity in general. Um, I think as we do that, it's going to be quite interesting for you. Um, what this series is doing is taking articles predominantly from May on the... Uh, the website and saying okay here's what our culture is contemplating. It's a non-Christian site, it's dealing with a wide variety of different types of topics and as we look at those topics hopefully we can show you that Christianity has a lot to say about most of these things and if you understand that it prepares you to kind of engage and enter in to those discussions as they happen in your life. Um, As I already said, today what we're going to do is to take a step back and look at the growth of Christianity, how it rose from a tiny little sect in the first century that had only a few thousand adherents to becoming not only a world religion, but the mandatory religion of the Roman Empire in the beginning of the fourth century. That is, is really an interesting rise that took place there. And hopefully we might be able to look at it maybe the cause that brought Christianity to prominence and me, perhaps be able to assess whether that would work for us today. Now, this is not in my notes, so this is kind of for free. Um, this church in this city is filled, the people around you right now, there are people in this room that are terrified by the political climate in the United States right now. And conversely, there's people sitting around you in this room and watching online right now that are euphoric about the political climate. Now, I'm going to tell you right now that I'm not trying to impose a naivety on this that would cause you to say, well, we should just be indifferent to what's happening in our government. I think to do that would be irresponsible, But on the other hand, if you're on either ends of these spectrums, it betrays the fact of what I believe is that your view of this whole entire thing is way too shallow. If you have lost heart that the Christian church will continue to advance God's kingdom in these days because of our political climate, your hope has always been in the wrong place. If you are on the other end are just euphoric because you think Christianity is going to advance because of our political culture, you're just as naive. There has to be an intelligence deeply embedded in us as Christians that doesn't look to those changes as our hope. Now I know for some of you that's probably offensive in and of itself. I kind of have a knack for doing that, Um, but that's not my intention. My intention is to help us begin to see things in a way that would enable us to be remarkably intelligent and remarkably intentional about the changes that we believe are necessary in not only our own lives, but in our country as a whole. So without question, I, I, I believe without any hesitation at all that this sermon captures the whole spirit of this series it's kind of strange that we're not looking at friendship, we're not looking at sex, we're not looking at a specific topic as much as we're looking at, okay, what caused Christianity to be so effective? How could it have actually become the object of disdain in the Roman Empire in which they would try to crush it under its heel and they couldn't do it? Not only could they not do it, it, it produced the exact opposite effect. Now, I think by understanding this, we will be able perhaps to come to our senses again and be able to become intentional and very intelligent about the ministries that we have in our own individual lives. Um, now, to, to do that this morning, the, the what, the, I gave you the why and the how, but the what this morning is basically to answer the question whether the, what happened in the first century and the second and the third century could actually work for us now, to answer that question, we're going to look at the historical record of Christianity's rise as a world religion, and then we're also going to look at how that actually can help help us engage the culture around us today. Now, for those of you that have been out of the country, you're you're, you're under a rock. Um, our country is deeply divided. <laughs> it's really it's really deeply divided, and if If you have had, if you've mustered the courage over the last couple of months to venture out into some of these discussions, man, they're hard. Some of these discussions. For those of you that uh, don't know, I I opened a uh, an office to kind of expand my private practice and my counseling and coaching at the WeWork space downtown. And the day after the election, it was the day of the election was like euphoric. I went down to the second floor in our office. They have this really nice common area and they had red, white, and blue drinks. And man, it was a wild party. Me and my wife were there about seven o'clock election evening. Um, The next day I went in, it was like a morgue. Um, And I asked one of the guys that I've become friends with at the front desk, and he said by eight o'clock, he said there was just two women left and they were crying. And that tells you just how slippery some of this stuff is. And I, you know, I, I've been in ministry for 25 years, and engaging these conversations is not easy. But I think as we unpack this a little bit this morning, it might give you a little bit broader perspective, hopefully. Um, I, I want to start by looking at Christianity's historic growth. Now, whether you're a Christian or not, um, you have to acknowledge the fact that this is a historical fact. Christianity, its rise, whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, is undeniable. And it really kind of begs the question, how could it possibly rise from being an illegal religion under the heel of Rome in the first century uh, to actually becoming the dominant religion of the Roman Empire by the early part of the fourth century? What caused that growth? Would that work for you? Now, again, there's kind of the, I think each of us has to recognize the propensity that we have to what they call, to succumb to the logical fallacy of the excluded middle, which means it's all one or it's all something else. In other words, there's no real middle in this. Um, but what I'm about to show you this morning, I think, should, should really simplify your ministry strategy. Now... Having said that, this in no way can supplant or replace you being intelligent and able to give a hope, uh, uh, an intelligent account for the hope that's in you. It's not instead of that. That's not what I'm getting at. What I'm getting at is being able to understand some of these historical aspects that are factoring in and kind of tensioning where we're living today. Now, just this past week, Michael Kulikowski, who is a professor of history of, and classics at Pennsylvania State University, as near as I could tell, he's not writing from a Christian perspective. He had several different perspectives that I think gave kind of way to that. He, he might be a Christian, but it wasn't at all indicated throughout his article. But just this week, his article offered this explanation of the social-political landscape in which Christianity rose to dominance. I think it's very curious, and this is what he wrote. He said that a world religion should have emerged from an oriental cult in a tiny and peculiar corner of, of Roman Palestine is nothing short of extraordinary. As social advancement came to depend on being a Christian, and as the civic calendar of of non-Christian beliefs was increasingly dismantled. The majority of urban Romans actively thought of themselves as Christians by the end of the fourth century. Rejecting Christianity now stood as the marked and unusual choice that embracing it had been, uh, embracing it had been uh, 200 years before. He's basically saying the tables were completely flipped. In other words, if you embrace Christianity 200 years before, you were considered insane. Now, by the middle of the 4th century, to not embrace it was insane. Now, that's that's a huge shift. That's a huge shift. Now, according to Gulakowski, for much of the first two centuries, the Roman Empire maintained a somewhat indifferent disposition toward Christianity. Now, I've got a footnote in my notes here that I'll just talk about just briefly. His report didn't... His, his paper didn't say anything about the neuronic persecution that took place in the middle uh, 64 to 68 AD. He kind of overlooked that. But the curious part about it is that he, he said for the first few centuries, there was, uh, there was kind of an indifference that typified Rome's disposition towards the church. And he said it was basically a don't ask, don't tell policy that placed responsibility on the Christian to live peaceably in lives that weren't disruptive to others. And he even wrote this quote. He said, Christians um, were not to be sought out or persecuted unless they made themselves a conspicuous nuisance, at which point they had no one to blame but themselves for their fate. And so he's he's writing about kind of a neutrality um, that didn't, Push much. It didn't ask pressing questions. And as long as, if you were a Christian, as long as you paid attention to your own life and you didn't become a nuisance to the lives of other people, they pretty much left you alone. Now, Christians endured several periods of intense persecution during the first 40 years of the third century, but imperial Rome began to focus all of its attention on internal politics so from 260 to 300 christianity experienced what they what they called its first golden age very positive environment Um, the the government wasn't endorsing christian efforts but it kind of left them alone and so christianity was thriving during during that uh, latter part of the first uh the third century rather 260 to 300 and uh, Gulikowski writes this. He said, although it's likely that we'll never have sufficient evidence to tell just how many Christians there were at, at any one time or just how fast the religion spread, we can say for certain that Christian numbers grew dramatically, and by the 290s there were Christians in the Senate, at court, and even in the families of emperors. And so you have this kind of yo-yo-like disposition with Rome. And so there's this kind of a don't ask, don't tell disposition that, uh, that grants Christianity enough neutrality in the empire that it is just like wildfire, expanding throughout the empire. And then there's this kind of intense period of persecution and then it would kind of ebb and flow. Now in 303, for political reasons, Emperor Gal- uh, Galerius blamed Christians for a series of calamities and instigated a very brutal attempt to actually exterminate Christianity from the empire, a campaign that was later called the Great Persecution. But by 311, he had to to admit that he couldn't do it. There was too many Christians, and they were too stubborn to give up their beliefs. And so by 313, so from 303 to 313, may have been one of the bloodiest periods in in church history. But Galerius had to admit by 311 that he, he said... I, my plan didn't work. Now, there was a lot of politics in that. Galerius was an emperor of the eastern part of the empire, and Constantine and his family was be rising to power in the west. And so um, Galerius actually was trying, because uh, Constinius was a, a Christian already, he was using his adversity against Christianity to overtake the Western part of the empire. He wanted to rule the whole thing by himself. So there's kind of some of the political tension that's going on. But my point is simply this, is that there was no consistency through this period. And so in in 303, uh, from 303 to 311, you have Galerius engaging this great persecution, and then by 313, he's turned loose of it. And so that provides this path for Constantine to not only become the emperor of the entire entire empire, he he had many Christians in his family, and he had been converted to a Christian. So by 324, he actually legislated Christianity as not only a legal religion, it was the mandatory religion of the empire. He restored Christian property, seized during the great persecution he enacted legislation that favored christians he extended uh, similarly pro-christian policies uh, to the eastern part of the empire where uh, he not only favored christians but actively discriminated against non-christians restricting their ability to worship or even fund their own temples and so the tide had completely shifted in 324. Now, as interesting as all those changes in the social political landscape of Rome, um, as interesting as they are, they don't really answer the question of why Christianity, what was causing it to grow? And I I think we can condense this down. Did the legalization of Christianity, was it really causative to its growth or was it just a correlation to its growth? I think, uh, decidedly, it was the latter. Christianity was thriving, and the use of Christianity by Galerius as an instrument to gain was just a leverage point. It didn't cause it to grow. And so it still begs the question, well, what did? What did cause it to grow? Now, as I said earlier, there are many of you that are Christians today that appear to be really conflicted about that question. You appear to be there's some of you that are celebrating recent political victories or advancements, and there's some of you that are deeply mourning some of those same things. And that, that begs the question, where did all this come from? And I, I, I think historically, in the, in the United States at least, we have to take a step back, and you have to begin to look at some of the initiatives that took place in the early 80s by, like, Jerry Falwell and Pat Roberts and the rise of the the religious right or the moral majority. For the first time in church history, you had all the Christians in a nation celebrating the fact that we are going to leverage this thing. We're going to get so much influence, we're going to have so much power that we're going to be able to legislate our way back to Christianity. Now, as I already said, I, I think that that is surprisingly and remarkably shallow. The division in our country is not simply legislative. The church, I believe, lost, pretty much lost her influence and its voice in our culture decades before that. And our capacity to reason with people, to persuade them about the gospel, to persuade them about biblical principles, went away a long time ago. And it seems like a convenient, easy way to regain all of that if we can just get the right man in office, if we can get just the right woman in office, if we can just pass the right kind of bills, the right kind of legislation. It's way, the division in our country is way different than that. And so we tend to have this tension that's still abiding, what caused it to grow? Now, the second point, I want you to take a look at a strategic cause of its growth, which I, I believe is the primary one. But without question, there are obviously many valid theological and philosophical arguments that would, you know, that would give explanation for the rise of Christianity. But the passage we looked at earlier is classically known as the sheep and the goats. That passage that we looked at gives us one of the most practical and well-documented explanations. Now, I want to start by having you consider the biblical principle of compassion because that was kind of the the morrow, the essence of what Jesus was getting at in that passage. And in in the final week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion, on several different occasions, we have record of Jesus giving descriptions of what his kingdom would look like when it was fully advanced, when it was fully realized here on earth. And in one of those settings he described a final judgment where a distinction would be made between those who would enter the kingdom and those condemned not to enter the kingdom. And he typified it metaphorically between this idea of the sheep and the goats. He wasn't discriminating against goats. He was just painting a picture of what this kind of would look like. And so beginning in verse 34 to 36, it talks about Jesus being this king that sits on his throne, And he makes a statement that he says that come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. In other words, this is the whole history of humanity has directed, pointed towards this. He said, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Now, what he's doing there is not talking about just giving clothing and water and, and a place to stay or visiting people in jail. He's, he's depicting a compassion that extends to every facet of life. And what's interesting is that in the next verses, from verse 37 to 40, he actually explains a significant confusion abiding in the, the minds of the people going into the kingdom. Which is really interesting if you ask yourself, why did he have to do that? And I think his point is drawn out in that explanation. He says in verse 37, he says, Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king answered them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least... Of these my brothers, you did it to me." Now, that is a remarkable statement. For the first time in the record of any world religion, God is shown here to say, I so closely relate to the poor and to the needy that for you to help them is for you to help me. Now, Jesus flips it over just to make sure that nobody's confused. And when he turns it over in verse 44 to 46, he's talking to those that will not go into the kingdom. And they express the same sort of confusion. And it says, then they, then they will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Tell us when we did that. And then he'll say to them, truly I say to you as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not, did not do it to me. And so not only does he paint it on the positive side, he expresses it on the negative side that, that, that Christians have deeply enshrined in a doctrinal understanding the simple fact that their pursuit of their faith and the pursuit of their knowledge and, and, and love of God is tied directly to their desire and ability to help the needs of their fellow man. And so, this biblical doctrine of compassion is enshrined in the somewhere around 8030, in the minds of Christians that when I help you, I'm helping God. If I turn my back on you, I'm turning my back on God. Now, the next part of this I want you to consider is the providential outworking of that compassion, because from the first century on, there are many accounts where Christians actually sacrificially gave of themselves during military conflicts, during famines, during persecution, during uh, just seasons of personal adversity. There's account after account after account of Christians actually upholding what Jesus told them. But no one in their wildest dreams could have possibly depicted or predicted what that would do throughout the Roman Empire. Now, in his book, Culture Making, which if you haven't read it, I would highly, highly encourage you to read that. But in his book, Culture Making, Andy Crouch is examining the conclusions of another historian, Rodney Stark. Rodney Stark's Stark book, sorry, Rodney Stark's book, there we go, um, his book is called The Rise of Christianity. And he wrote it before he was a Christian. He simply, he's, since that time has converted to Christianity. And so what I'm going to read to you is a quote from Crouch in his interpretation of what Stark was saying. Is that clear? And this is what he said. He said, their lives simply did not look like their neighbors, but they were not cut off from their neighbors. The culture they created was public and accessible to all. At least two major epidemics uh, claimed up to a third of the population of the Roman Empire in the first centuries of the Christian era. In the face of terrible condition, pagan elites or non-Christian rulers uh, with their priests simply fled the cities. The only functioning social network left behind was the church, which provided basic nursing care to Christians and non-Christians alike, along with a hope that transcended death. The church had no magic medicine to cure the plague, but it turns out that survival, even of a terrible disease, has a lot to do with one's access to the most basic elements of life, simply providing food, water, and friendship to their neighbors. Christians enabled many to remain strong enough that their immune systems could mount an effective defense. Conscientious nursing without any medications could cut the mortality rate by two-thirds or even more. The result was that after consecutive epidemics had swept through a city, a very disproportionate number of those remaining would either have been Christians or pagans who had been nursed through their sickness by Christian neighbors. And with their family and friends decimated by the plague, it is no wonder that many of these neighbors seeking new friends and family would naturally convert to the Christian faith. So according to both Crouch and Stark, the essential key to the rise of Christianity was their willingness to just meet simple needs. They weren't writing tracts for evangelism. They weren't creating apologetic courses. They were simply there, saying, I know that everybody else left, but I'm not going to leave you. I'll be here. Now, how does that help us? if that basically is kind of the nucleus of that cause of the rise, how does that help us? There are two practical, I think, applications of that historical count that I think actually are quite helpful. Number one, the first is emotional stability. Whether you're euphoric or terrified by our current political climate, the advancement of God's kingdom has, has, has been unhindered it's still going to continue exactly the same. So if you're mourning that you're not going to be able to do what you thought you were going to do, you still have work to do. The political climate does not justify you abandoning your concern and care for other people. Now, if you're celebrating on the other end of the spectrum, our government is not going to live out your faith for you. Your personal responsibility to your neighbors, it is never going to do those. No matter how big it gets. And you're going to have to understand what it's like to bear a burden in your heart for other people. Take, for instance, one of the, the most di- divisive, or the, most, the lightning rod issue that people would look at in our culture that are non-Christians. They would look at it and say, well, this issue of abortion seems so central to this whole, this whole piece. And I, I, I would agree. I don't, I don't, I don't agree with abortion. I don't at all. But now on the other hand, those of you that don't agree with abortion, when was the last time you helped a single mother? Oh, you're willing to say, I don't think they should be able to have these abortions, but when was the last time you identified a single mother in your place of work or in your neighborhood? And you actually stopped and asked her, what, what can I do to help you? I, I, I'm so grateful that you have you brought this child into the world. What can I do as your neighbor to help advance that cause. You see, those are the things that the church was doing in the first three centuries. Now, the reason I think this helps us is that it begins to allow us to separate a causative issue that would cause us to say, my faith can't continue because who is in public office, or my faith became easy because of who's in public office. I'm here to tell you that that's not true. No matter which side of the political landscape you land on, you have work to do that belongs to you. Not to our country, but to you. So emotional stability starts to come out of it because we can begin to lop off some of the extremism that's on both sides that is mourning as if the advancement of the kingdom will never happen again or celebrating as if it's going to happen without you. It puts us in the middle to where we're able to think clearly and be able to really be intentional about entering in and engaging our lives. Now, the second part that I think is really helpful is that it brings about a really simple strategy. Those of you that I often you'll speak with you or you'll write me emails and, and interact with me to let, to let me know that I can never learn the stuff that you know and talking with non-Christians. I'm never going to be as eloquent. I'm never going to understand and retain all the research and the information that you have. This doesn't say that that is meaningless, but this says that your compassion is essential to the whole thing. No matter what it is you're doing, if you are the most eloquent person in the world, Paul says this essentially, doesn't he, in 1 Corinthians 13? If you become the most eloquent, persuasive, compelling voice in the United States, if you have no love, you're a clanging gong. That just means a pain in the ear. So, there's something about the strategic simplicity that emerges here that begins to cause you to see that but the Bible talks like this, doesn't it? In Psalm 56, it says that every tear that you've ever cried, God wrote in a book and put it in a bottle. He wrote the number of your days before there was even one of them. He knows the number of the hairs on your head. That is talking about an intimacy in a relation to God that would cause you to celebrate, like in Luke 22, when the woman puts in the two small copper coins and everybody else looks over it. and Jesus said, she put in more in the the grammar intimates more than all the rest combined with those two small copper coins worth less to you than a penny. And Jesus noticed it. And so what is the value of you shoveling the walks of an elderly couple in your neighborhood? What is the true value? of you asking if you can run an errand for someone or coming alongside a single mother, like I said earlier, or not abandoning a person that has been you know, ostracized, perhaps even by other Christians, that now needs some direction and compassion. Can you so easily say that those don't mean much? Or is it possible that they mean far more than you could possibly imagine? I think they do. And so not only do we have emotional stability that comes out of this because it kind of lops off the edges, but it gives us a really simple strategy. Now, one of the most basic tenets of Christianity is that God is at work in his creation, restoring it to its original condition. Literally, in, in Revelation 21.5, he's making all things new. That is not just salvation in the lives of non-Christians. That's redemption of the whole creation. And as you engage that, are you engaging it with confidence? That not only is, the, is God calling you and in, 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 orienting your mind towards that redemption, His Spirit is attending you to bring not only to, to, to want what He wants you to want, but to do. See, that, that's Philippians 2 and verse 12 and 13. When Paul says, Work out your salvation by fear and tre- trembling, for is it not Him that's at work in you to will and to work according to His good pleasure? You have to be willing to bear the burden of wanting it before you'll ever be able to do it. You'll never do the right thing by accident, is another way to say the same thing. Now, the simple fact of Christian, the history of Christianity, makes it undeniable that the testimony of individual Christians, those testimonies have always spread in direct proportion to the love that they have for their fellow man. Simple compassion. Simple understanding. An ability to literally put yourself in the shoes of another person. They were able, when they did that, to change the world. In a recent article, Tim Keller, he wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition, and I think he captures this really clearly, and this is how he puts it. He says... While the mission of the institutional church is to preach the word and to produce disciples, the church must disciple Christians in such a way that they, they live justly and integrate their faith with their work. So the church doesn't directly change culture, but it disciples and supports people who do. Another balance has to do with society society's cultural institutions. Rather than Taking them, taking them over or avoiding them as a corrupting influence or treating them with indifference. Christians are to be a faithful presence within them. He, he strikes, I think, a balance in that that would challenge every one of us, whether you're celebrating or mourning, whether you're confused or whether you're clear. There's a sense in which he says, you don't have to overturn everything. You don't have to despise everything. Apply yourself to enter in and change it and see what happens. Let me take a couple of your questions and then I'll be done quickly. No questions, wow. That is either one of two things. <laughs> I'm really fortunate that I'm done so quickly, but I have a, I have a feeling that I'm going to pay it 10 times over through the week in my email. <laughs> so I, I, hope, I hope you're encouraged. Nobody has taken away your ability to show up as a remarkable light in a dark situation. Now the government might not be doing all that you want it to do but that doesn't change the fact that you can still do the most important thing our culture needs right now. You can love your fellow man. You can be intelligent and intentional trusting to God those little contributions that they one day might change the lives of other people. Let's pray. Father, I know that this subject is just like a lightning rod. Um, I'm not naive enough to think that perhaps some of the things I said seem shallow or superficial. They seem incomplete when contemplating the depth of all that's happening around us. But Father, I I think that there has to be some sort of solidarity in our hearts someplace. There has to be some sense in which we're able to gather ourselves instead of being blown to and fro by our emotional responses to things that there comes out of it a sense of constancy, a sense of courage, a sense of intentionality and purpose that would cause us to say, I'm glad I'm not going to give an account for being the president of the United States or a senator or a congressman. I'm glad that that isn't what you've required of me. But I know that I will give an account for how I've treated other people, not just those that love me and those that can reciprocate my gifts and my niceness, but what it is that I do with the person that no one cares about, the marginalized outcast that perhaps I have any. even I have even been a part of it. Lord, I can think back to when I lost my eye when I was 11. And I honestly had no idea how I would get through it. But I can look back now and see that it was one of the greatest blessings in my life. It took me from a position of recognition and popularity and cast me into the very dregs of a culture that I was familiar with winning, and suddenly I lost. But it helped me to to discover there people that I I had harmed, and I never would have understood them or known them without that. And I think it has truly changed me. I think it's caused me to be less critical and more hopeful that we can all be better human beings. And I think we need a healthy dose of that now. I think we need a healthy dose of wanting to be the ones that pull things together instead of push them and blow them apart. Help us. I pray that the, the women and the men and the boys and the girls in this room would become agents of change in a society that desperately needs us to show up and make a difference. So we commit these things to you now for we ask and pray them in Jesus' good name. Amen.
0: You can find more audio as well as study questions and sermon notes at l2church.com. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us a message through the contact form on our website. Thanks for listening.